back in Hosea, the book of Hosea today. Our scripture reading will be found in Hosea chapter 13. Please turn there with me in your Bibles. If you don't have your own Bible, our ushers have some Bibles available. If you raise your hand right now, they'll bring one right to you. Hosea chapter 13. Let's all stand in respect to the reading of God's holy word. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist or like the dew that goes early away, like the shaft that swirls from the threshing floor or like smoke from a window. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. So I am to them like a lion, like a leopard. I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breasts, and there I will devout there I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers, those of whom you said, give me a king and princes? I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. The pains of childbirth come for him, but he is an unwise son, for at the right time he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched. It shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled, rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. May the Lord give us understanding this portion of his word that we read, that we might understand, that we might live our lives in obedience to him and bring glory to him. Let's bow now for a word of prayer. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you once again for a Sunday morning where we come to worship as a group, as a unit, as a people called out by you as a people who have been saved 
through faith, by the grace that you bestowed through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. We come to honor him today. We come to hear from your word today. And we pray that you'd open our eyes to see your word and to make it clear so we'd understand how you want us to live, how you want us to walk in obedience to you. We pray for those, Lord, um, as part of this group that normally are here. We think of Marge and her surgery and recovery for her. We pray, Lord, that you just continue to watch over her, protect her, and bless her. We also pray for Cal and for Jamar, for her family, Lord, that um, as they are concerned and as they care for her, that you would just give them a, a uh, peace that comes from trusting in you. And we just bring her to you, Lord, thanking you for uh, your work during the surgery and how things are going well and recovery is coming about well. We just praise you for that and pray that you bring about a complete recovery. We pray for others, Lord, who are part of this group, who just suffer in, in different ways, who have different physical challenges, that they would look to you to meet every challenge and that, that trust would be wholeheartedly in you. We thank you for who you are. You are one who redeems us. Um, you are one who keeps us physically, who made these bodies, and you heal, and you uh, prolong, and you take care of these bodies. And so we look for you to do that uh, in our lives. We pray for your message today, Lord, that you'll be along with us, your Holy Spirit, to guide us into thinking as you would have us to think, challenge our, our thinking, challenge our lives so that uh, your word is, is, is uh does the job that you would have it to do to bring conviction, to bring comfort where that's needed, and to uh, direct us in a, a right and a true relationship with you, one that honors and brings glory to you. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated as our choir comes for the song before the preaching of God. Hosea chapter 13, as we continue our series, it's been a while since we've done it, but we've seen in Hosea God's gracious love for his people, and it's totally consistent with, even though it contrasts with God's judgment of sin in his people. God has a gracious love for his people, and God will judge his people in their sin. It, it's, it's part of the entire package of the Word of God that shows that if you just take one aspect of the Word of God or one thing that God says and you highlight that above all else, you will have a lopsided, unbalanced, incorrect view of what God is saying. If you say simply God is love and that's all that God is and that expresses all that God is, you miss the point that his love has another side of it because God loves, God will judge. He will judge sin. God said to Adam, his plan with Adam was, look, you can't stay in this place. Why? Because it's now tainted by sin. And because I love you, I won't let you live forever in this mess. I'm going to do something for you and do something about that. 
God says the same thing to us. People looking today to better their lives here, and that's fine, but you need to realize it ain't all about here. God said, I got something better for you because I'm going to judge sin. I'm going to judge this world, and I'm going to bring such a strong judgment to it that every living thing here will be affected and impacted. But I'm going to create a new place for my people. So this is consistent with the word of God. God loves, he has a gracious love for his people, and yet he will judge sin. Don't ignore one without the other. We can preach God's judgment and ignore God's love. We don't get an accurate view or correct view of God. If we preach God's love and ignore God's judgment, then why should a person obey God? There's no consequence. God has no teeth to what he says. We need to follow God. We're commanded to obey God because he will, in fact, judge as well. And so we see that. And when that's echoed again in this chapter, let's see how that's connected. In, verse, in chapter 13, verse 1, he's going to give what, what we see in this chapter. The, the whole picture is the picture of God's judgment on Israel because of their continuous sin. That word I'm going to use again and again, continuous sin, because continuous sin shows a pattern of sin. Now look at what it says, verse 1. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. Now we know Ephraim is simply another word, a synonym for Israel or a synonym for God's people. Old Testament Israel was a picture of God's people and the way that he was going to bring his plan about to save mankind through his people. So Ephraim, it says, when he spoke, there was trembling. What does that mean? He's talking about respect here. That there was a time when, when Israel had respect among the world or among its neighbors. God's people had tremendous respect. Why? Because they obeyed God and honored him. The same is true for us today is that as we obey God and honor him, we won't be like the world, but they will respect us. The more we become like them, the less they respect us. That was happening with Israel, and it's happening with God's people today as well. You try to be like the world and, and live like them, and you will not be respected. That's all throughout uh, uh, history. We, we see it in, in the Bible. Uh, we see the difference between Abraham and Lot. Abraham was one who was called out by God to go to a place that he didn't know where it was. He didn't, God didn't even identify. He said, just go and I'll show you. He obeyed God. He brought along his family, Lot. Lot decided, hey, I'm going to stick down in this land here. He began to live like the people. And at the end of that, we see he escaped God's judgment because he was, he did belong to God and God completed his promises to him. But Lot had no testimony among the people. He was not respected by the people. And you know, our respect is important because we need people to listen to us, not, not to show respect to us or, or just for listening's sake, but because we speak God's truth, we need to be listened to and respected. So we need to carry ourselves in such a way that when we speak something, people say, wow, I better pay attention. I better listen. 
that person is one who lives what he says. I better listen to what he says because I know God is speaking to him and speaking through him. That's the way we should have. But it says Israel started out that way. When they spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, it says in verse 1. There was respect among Israel, but then something happened. But there's a few key words in this chapter, and you'll see them there. But and therefore, uh, uh, and or so, we'll see that in this chapter. They, they give a transition. They show a, a change of thought, a contrast. Israel was respected, but, verse 1, he incurred guilt through Baal and died. What does it mean? He incurred guilt. Um, he sinned, and the focus of that sin is spoken of through Baal. The focus of Israel's sin in Hosea, in fact, in much of the Old Testament, and it's so true today uh, as well amongst God's people, the focus of their sin is idolatry. Idolatry. He incurred guilt through Baal. Baal was a form of worship that the nations, the wicked nations around Israel had been engaged in, and we'll talk about it as we go through this chapter, but it's idolatry. They worship, what is idolatry? It is the worship or the honor of anything or anyone above God. That's what idolatry is. It is the worship or the honor or the preference of anything or anyone above God. If you think of it that way, you have a true thinking, and you can take that into your, into your life. If you respect money on Sunday, so you got to work on Sunday above being where God's people are and being what, doing what God has to say, then you have an idol, okay? If you respect or honor or prefer anything above God, anything, anyone, if I respect or honor uh, my wife above God, then I have an idol, that's a good idol. It's a good-looking idol. It's an idol I love. But it's not to be honored above and respected above God. If I love and honor and respect my grandchildren above God, then I have an idol. Again, they're cute idols. They're fun to be with. But they are idols if I regard them above God. And so it is in our life. Anything then can be an idol. It is how we regard it, how we honor it, how we prefer it. Do we prefer it above God? Our jobs, our children, our money, our time, our sleep, our pleasures, our enjoyment, even our pain, all those things, when we look to them and refer, prefer them above God, they then become an idol for us. So the, 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 the main focus on Israel is their idolatry. God says, I am God. There is none other. We'll see that as we go through. And so that was their sin. Look at the focus of that sin, how he, how he uh, uh, um, mentions it. By the way, uh, Proverbs 14, verse 34 says this, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. In regard to Israel being respected, and then now that they have sinned, their respect has gone down. The same is true for us. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And we look at this sin of idolatry. Look how it's spoken of in verse 2. It says, uh, they make for themselves metal images. Metal images. That, 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 that brings the thought of something that is fabricated. Something that is not living, but is made. 
metal images compared to a God who exists, who is living. He lives forever. So a contrast to their idols, to the almighty God. It also says in verse 2 about their idols, idols skillfully made of their silver. There's a lot in that phrase, skillfully made. In other words, this is something that took skill. They didn't just slap something together. Skill, and skill tells me something. I'm I'm working on a project in my house right now, and I'm learning, trying to do something to take, you know, take on another level than what I've done before. And what I learned is that it takes time, It takes a lot of effort to do something skillfully. You can slap something together, but if you want to do it right and make it look right, you have skill, you have to learn. You have to practice. You have to put time into it. You have to put effort into it. And so this is something Israel had done. They had invested their own selves, their own time, their own effort into making these idols. And they got good at it. Skillful, it says. Notice also it says skillfully, uh, idols skillfully made of their silver. Not only time and effort took place, but they spent a lot of money. They invested a lot of their personal income in these idols. That's usually what, what happens with an idol. When we raise something up, whatever it is that we raise up, we invest our time, our effort, and we invest our money. And in fact, if you want to look at the idols in your life, look at where you invest your time, your money, and your most effort. That is your idol. You said, that's that's not an idol. I trust God. I believe God. Well, do you believe God above all that? Show it in your daily living. What do you invest your time and your money? What do you invest your money in? Now, people say, you know, those churches, they always talking about money. They always asking for money. The fact is, God doesn't need any of our money. He doesn't, but what he does is he asks for it. He, he demands it, in fact, because he knows that it's the only way you can worship him and put him first place is he be first place in everything. Now, when I married my wife, I said, you, you are number one of all women in the world to me. Now, what if I did that? And, and every week I was giving a gift to some woman at work and making a meal for her and, and making special projects for her. And she said, wait a minute. Something right. If I'm the one, then I do expect you when you get paid to, to put that money in our account, not somebody else's account, right? You invest your time, you invest your money in what means most to you. So how much does God mean to you? Take a look at your checkbook. Take a look at it. Or is something else more important? You know, I, uh, I've been working for as a part-time thing for, for FedEx delivery, and I notice there's some people that's just all the time. They're getting deliveries all the time. I, I know the address by heart. They have invested in Internet and purchases through the Internet, and they do it all the time. I wonder, if you look at your account, can you tell that you've invested in God? Can you tell? Israel was invested heavily heavily in their idols. They were skillful of their own silver. It cost them something. But guess what? They were glad to invest in that. That's how it is when you have a God. You invest. Also, I notice here in verse 2, it says, All of them, the work of craftsmen. And we talk about skill, but there's something else here. It had become a trade. 
the work of craftsmen, not the work of just one guy. Craftsmen is plural, right? These skillful guys had gotten together, and there was now a trade. We can imagine it today. There's a union. There's a shop set up. There, there's a whole trade. There's a school to teach you how to take the metal and make these idols. There's, there's shops that sell them. There's guys who buy them back and resell. It's a whole trade, a whole industry, and a whole business. Israel had gone wholeheartedly into this. What happens when you go wholeheartedly after something? End of verse 2 said, It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. What does that mean? Well, first of all, those who offer human sacrifice, and, and in fact, we can turn there. Isaiah 57, verse 5. It had become a part of their religion and their worship. The people around Israel, the nations around them, to sacrifice their children. Now, just so you know exactly what that means, when you sacrifice something, you kill it. You put it to death for an offering to a deity or to a god. In Isaiah 57, verse 5, it says, <clears throat> You who burn with lust among the oaks, under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys, under the clefts of the rocks. The practice of the nations around Israel was to offer their children as a human sacrifice. And this is what the prophet Isaiah was preaching against because it was a common practice. So back in Hosea, he says this, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. The, the term of the, that terminology to kiss calves, so kiss is a very easy term to understand. It's something that they honored. It's they were paying homage to, they were worshiping, they were respecting. So it says that they had worshipped these idols. And we know the calf was, was a common type idol. Even before, uh, when, when Israel was leaving out of Egypt, remember in Exodus 32, the golden calf there? They had made up for them. Where did they get the idea of the golden calf? <laughs> it didn't come from God. You know, in, 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 in Exodus 31, we see God giving them Exodus 25 and Exodus 31, we see in God giving them orders through Moses how to, how to um, make the things of the temple and the things that were the tabernacle at that time, the things that were supposed to be used in worship. Um, but the nations around them were making these things and, and had a whole practice of worshiping these things. And, and they had taken this, this idea from other people and they were using it themselves. They said, you're kissing calves now. You are paying homage. You're worshiping like the nations around you. And, and that's an interesting phrase because God is saying to them, you have me, the creator of everything, and yet you turn to a calf. You turn to an idol made by your hands of a calf that's supposed to be equal to me. Every time when you see Israel coming up against nations that, that had these kind of gods, that God would always, 
it's, it's like he would just toy with them. He would just let them know who he was and who they were, that they were nothing and that he was God Almighty. He said, but these nations and their religions, you have taken them in and, and now you're paying homage to them. Let's see what, 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 what happens. And in verse 2, at the beginning of verse 2, it says, and now they sin more and more. What's happening in Israel is now, it's not something like they just got caught up in and, 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 and then they got out of. What happens with sin, sin grabs you, it clutches you, and it will not let you go. And once you get caught up in this, it's, it's something that becomes now a pattern in your life. As believers, we ought not to have these kind of patterns in our lives, and we ought to be breaking, allowing God and his power to break us from those sinful patterns in our life. Notice what it says in verse 2, and now they sin more and more. As so sin begins to, to, to grab you, it becomes a pattern, a lethal, continuous action that leads to death. More and more. He's saying it's not just a little bit. People think they can take a little bit. Uh, it's like taking a little bit of fire. I'm going to capture a little bit of fire. But what fire does, it, it just begins to expand. And it begins to consume everything that it touches. And so sin acts like that in our lives. It, another word for that would be a cancer. Everything, a cancer just affects and impacts everything around it. If you don't do everything you can to cut it all out, it's going to reproduce. It's going to act up again. It's a picture, really, of sin in our life. They, they are now impacted more and more. They thought they could play with it. They thought they could just have a little fun, but now it begins to take over their lives. That's what sin does. Be careful when you let it in. There's a remedy for that, though, and he goes later on in his passage. We'll get to that and see what that remedy is. Because of this pattern of sin in their life, so God is, is, is totally uh, uh, justified in what he does because his people had, had begun to go away from him and has sinned. And it's not just a one-time thing. It's a pattern and they were increasing. God speaks. First of all, in verse 3, he brings about, he speaks of his judgment. Because of the pattern of sin, Israel will be judged. And that's the rest of the chapter from 3 to 16. So let's break that part up into a couple pieces. The next few verses, in fact, verse 3, gives a description or picture of God's judgment. And he uses three things that's going to happen as a result of his judgment. He says in verse 3, therefore they shall be like. When you see that, he's, he's going to give us a picture of what the impact of his judgment is going to be on his people. Three things. One, the morning mist or the dew. The second is shaft. And the third is like smoke from a window. So you read verse 3, therefore they should be like the morning mist or like the dew that goes early away, like the shaft that swirls from the threshing floor or like smoke. From a window. What, what do these three images, what do they say about the impact of God's judgment, or the impact of sin in a person's life? Well, all three of these have, have a similar trait. 
The morning mist or dew, it says, it goes away early. The shaft, it says, it's the shaft that swirls. And then it says smoke from a window. We're supposed to, to picture that and, and get an idea. All three of these things are things that dissipate. They pale or they, they disappear and they are no more. And when they're gone, you wonder, where are they? Smoke coming from a window. You can imagine, you know, getting warm outside. We like to put the barbecue grill on. You had a barbecue grill, and you light up the charcoals, and, and there's smoke that comes. And it's that time, you know, if you do that inside, that smoke will just fill the air. And it's, you know, it's like you can't even hardly breathe. You got to open the window. But if it's outside, it, what seems to be significant and great, after a while, it just dissipates into the air and no more. No more. The shaft is like that. The shaft we describe like a, a peanut, and you, you crack the shell, and, and uh, the skin on that peanut, you rub that between your fingers, and you blow that into the air, and it becomes insignificant. It becomes almost like nothing. The dew that's on the ground. We were walking across the park yesterday. We were doing evangelism, and, and uh, I decided to walk on the grass, and it was still kind of early in the day, and the grass was still moist. You could even see the mist on the ground. But you know that's not going to last. When the sun comes up, you're like, where did it go? You can walk. You can lay down on the grass and not even get wet. These are things that seem to be something, but after a short time, very short time, they dissipate and become nothing. That's kind of scary when you say that's going to be our lives if we live in a life of sin. God's going to judge his people so that they seem significant at first. And after a very short time, you wonder, where did they go? It's almost no hint of them at all or just a slight hint that they were ever there. He says his judgment and sin, his judgment because of sin, the impact of sin, the impact of his judgment is going to be like that, like ghost town, like something that was there seemed significant, but no longer anywhere around. So in verse 4 and 5, he gives us a reminder of who we are to worship. And another key word, as I mentioned, a transition word, but, verse 4, but I, but I, but I am, but I am. We know I am is the, is the word in the Old Testament that, that depicts God in his name. He says, I am the great I am. I am means Yahweh, Jehovah. He says, but Jehovah. But I am the self-existent one, the one who exists all by himself and all because of himself and is not dependent on anyone or anything else. He says, but God, but, but Yahweh, but the Lord God. I am the Lord your God. He says, I am Yahweh. I am Jehovah. Not just any God. People want to say today, you know, the worship of God is all the same. No matter what religion, we're all worshiping the same God. The answer to that is absolutely not. 
truth. God exists and he is one, but everybody is not worshiping. It doesn't, it, it's not like you could just call him whatever you want. He says, no, I am distinct. I am distinct by my name. I am known by who I am. Don't worship a rock and call it me. I am God. I am God alone. I am the only creator. I am the God that is defined in scripture. I am that one. He goes on to say this. I am the Lord, your God. He's talking to Israel. I am the one who revealed myself to you. In other words, I, I've spoke to the whole world by showing myself through you. This one nation. I called out my people so I could reveal myself to all of my creation. God is doing that today. He is speaking through his people today to speak and to connect with those who are not his people that he might redeem them to be his people. God is speaking to you. If you believe in Jesus Christ, he is speaking to you. Your life speaks. God uses you. You are a testimony. You might be the only person on, at, at the job. You might be the only person at school. You might be one of few people on your, in your neighborhood who knows God. God is using you to speak to others. He says to Israel, I am the Lord, your God. I've identified with my people, and my people need to identify with me. He says, I'm your God. Not these metal images that you made. Not these golden calves that you created. I am the Lord, your God. He reminds them too in verse 4, he says, from the land of Egypt. What's important about that? He's saying, I want to remind you of where you came from, of where you come from. You came as a slave in a land that persecuted you, and I delivered you from that. If you're a believer today, I want you to think for a moment, what has God delivered you from? I want you to be reminded of that. He is the Lord your God who brought you from sin, who brought you from devastation. That's true for every believer. He has brought us from that. He's reminding that he is the Lord that changes our lives by delivering us from what would destroy us. That's the Lord. That's the Lord God. That's the Lord our God. The Lord from the land of Egypt. Verse 4, at the end of that, he says, you know no God but me. He says, I introduced myself to you, and I'm the God who showed himself real in your life. Look, I can tell you real plain. If God hadn't done anything for you in your life, you might as well walk up out of here and, and go about your own business and live your life as you please. If, if up to this point he has done nothing for you, then you have no reason to serve him. You, you can go on, live. But the fact is, he is opening your eyes constantly to how much he's done for you. He's helping you to see that more and more. And because he's done for you, he's brought you from the land of Egypt He's saying, you ought to serve him. You ought to be committed to him. You ought to be devoted to him. He demands that of you. 
demands that of his people Israel. He says, I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me. And then he makes it even more specific. And besides me, there is no Savior. He says, there's no deliverer who can deliver you outside of me. There's no one who can rescue you from trouble outside of me. Bring it into right now. He's saying, look, if you've got medical issues, you can go to the doctor if you want, but the doctor can't heal you. If you've got physical, if you've got spiritual, what we call mental issues in your mind, within, and things ain't right, you can go to the psychiatrist, you can go to psychologists, you can go to the counselor if you want. They can't do nothing for you. It is God who created, who made, who rescues, who delivers. He's the one that comes into your life who can give you peace of mind, who can give you that tranquility that you need. He can give you that as you trust in him. He's the one. He's the only one. He says there is no savior besides me. There's a lot of folks who call themselves saviors. But God says they don't compare to me. They can't deliver as I deliver. They can't save you from death. They can't save you from hell. They can't secure your eternity. They can't help you breathe another breath. They can't make your heart beat another time longer. They can't make your eyes open when you wake up in the morning and make you inhale and exhale. They can't make your mind function as it ought to. They can't do that. Technology can't do that. Medicines can't do that. Nothing can do that apart from God. He says, there is no Savior besides me. It's interesting. This is a quote from Isaiah. Isaiah 43, 11. And he says that same thing because he's talking to a hard-headed, stubborn people. And he said, do you realize that there is no Savior but God? People today are looking for saviors. You know, we want to legalize marijuana because that's going to give them a Savior. We want to go to the pharmaceutical and we want to get legal drugs because we think that's going to give us a Savior. It may give you some temporary relief aside from all the side effects that happen with it. It may give you some temporary relief in something, but it's not going to solve your real problem. God says he alone is man's savior. God and God alone. Besides me, there is no savior. So it's not in a pipe that you can smoke. It's not in, 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 in a pill that you can swallow. It's not in a syringe that you can inject. It's not even in a book that you can read. It is in God who is a person who is the Savior. For those of us who know him, that's good news. That, that's just enormously good news, that I'm connected to the God who cares about my life. Not only does he care, I like to have somebody who cares. You know, you talk to somebody, you want them to kind of listen. But above that, when you go away, you want to know, can he really do something? He, I share my whole life, but can he help me? That's where God is. He cares and he's able. He's willing and he's able. He points that out. He says, 
It was I, verse 5, who knew you in the wilderness. I like that word knew. He's saying, I had a relationship with you. I made myself known to you. I believe right now God is making himself known to you. He's speaking to your heart. He's showing you that I am a personal God with whom you can have a relationship with. God had delivered his people in the wilderness. And through that, they were to come to know him, experience him, and have a relationship with him. He reminds them in verse 5, in the land of drought. It was in that wilderness that God is the one that gave them bread. It's in that wilderness God, one, literally gave them water from a rock. It is the one that God healed their diseases. God is the one that protected them. God is the one that provided for them. And they were in that wilderness. In the wilderness, they knew that they needed God. Well, something happens to us, and the next verse kind of picks that up, picks up on that. It says in verse 6, but, but when they had grazed, they became full. See, in the wilderness, the picture of the wilderness is a picture of poverty. It's a picture of need. It's a picture of desperation. And we know in those times, in those moments in our life, we understand that we need God. But then when you get to the land, and that's where Israel was now, living in the land, living large, right? They're living good. They, things are, are going pretty good. It says they have grazed. They're full. They're satisfied. They are prosperous. It's a picture of prosperity now. Do they trust God now? See, it's, it's a picture of our lives. It's often when we are our when we're in poverty, when we're in need, we, we know we need God and we can cry out to him. But oftentimes, you know, after Friday comes and payday has come, somebody's given us the money. Now how do you serve God? Now how do you honor him? In prosperity, it says when they got full, what happened? Verse 6, they, they were filled and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. They were begging for groceries. Then when they got the check, went to the bank, cashed the check, went grocery shopping, came home, they forgot all about me. Start digging in, start cooking, start putting all this stuff together. They forgot all about me. One of the reasons why we pray before we eat is to just acknowledge God. We say, God, you're the reason why I have food to put in my mouth. You're the reason why I can open my mouth. You're the reason I have an appetite even to eat. You are the reason for me living. I acknowledge you in everything I do. It's to keep us from being lifted up in pride. That's what he says. Their hearts were lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. Now, where did God go? Did he disappear? No, he's been there all the time. He's been working with them and in their lives all the time. But how easy it is, here's the, here's the message there, how easy it is for us to forget God in prosperity. It's, it's, it's just during the week. Monday, we're thinking about God. Friday, we just got paid. We don't need God. We're ready to party and celebrate. That's the picture of the phase of life that we go through. But for the believer, he's saying, no, don't, don't, don't act like that. On Monday, you need me. On Friday, you need me just as much. You ought to be thankful to me instead of forgetting me. They have forgotten God. 
Here's another connecting word in the next verse, verse 7. So, so, because they forgot God, God's judgment is described by three animals in verse 7. A lion, a leopard, and a bear. Now, it doesn't take a whole lot of imagination for us to get the picture here. He gives it to us. A lion devours. The leper says, I, I will lurk beside the way. You see that in verse 7? Like a leopard, like a lion, like a leopard, I will lurk beside the way. This is a picture of God's judgment. And then in verse 8, I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. Now, I've never encountered a bear in the wilderness and don't think I really want to. But the one thing they say, if you see a cub, a baby bear, Think, all right? Mama ain't too far away. So don't think you, oh, that's cute, and I can go over there and, you know, pull my cell phone out and get a nice little picture. See, Mama Bear don't know what your cell phone is. All she knows, you're getting a little too close to my cubs. And the picture there is Mama Bear will be ferocious. And have no mercy. And that's what the picture of God's judgment. That's the picture of God's judgment. What these have in common is their ferociousness and the fact that you cannot win against them. It's not even a fight. He summarizes his judgment in, the next, in verses 9 through 11. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. God's judgment is one that has an amazing impact, a devastating impact on Israel. But he pictures it this way. You are against me. The reason why they're being judged is because they have turned against God. And he says this, you've turned against your helper. When a person does not want to, to, to turn to God, they are saying, I don't want help from the only one who can really help me. Now, we have a lot of social agencies um, in our culture, in our community, and they serve a purpose. But the one problem there, and when I think about it, parents do the same thing. The one problem is they tend to be a way for people not to turn to God. We don't want to force people, and, and I'm not saying that we should in our culture, but the fact is, is that if you really want help, you need to turn to God. And I think as believers, we need to speak that message. Not force somebody to turn to God. No, we're not doing that, but we need to speak that message. Look, I know you're asking me, for a quarter. And if you really need it, I can help and give it to you. But what you really need is to trust and to walk with God. I know they're going to give you a thousand excuses why they can't do that. But that's because they don't want to walk with God. They don't want to humbly put themselves under God's jurisdiction. 
We as believers need to be doing that. We need to be putting ourselves under. We need to be submitting ourselves to God. We need to recognize when we turn against God, we are turning against the one, the only one who can help us. He says in verse 9, you are against me, against your helper. We call that bite the hand that feeds you. I had a dog once I was training. And uh, he would get so hungry that I would put the food in, in his pen. Not because he was starving, dude. He was just greedy. I would put the food in, in, in his bucket, and, and he'd be chowing at it so fast that if I put my hand too close to that, to that, that bucket, he would snap at my hand thinking I'm trying, to, I'm trying to take his food from him. So one time he snapped, and, and, and he, he snipped me. And I, I literally, I know he, did, he didn't understand English, but my dog was smart. I said, look. I'm the one giving you this food, and you're going to bite me? Won't be for me. You won't be eating today. He got carried away in his feeding, and what did he do? Snap at me. Well, I taught him a lesson. He never did that again. But he realized out of respect, one, I'm in charge, and two, I give you what you need. In the time that you need it, I'm not holding nothing back. Those who snap against God are doing like that. They're snapping against the one who protects, who provides, who gives them everything that they need. God says, you are against your helper. Then he calls out, so where's your king? Where's the folks you've been counting on? Show me. How they have helped you. He, he, he calls that question out. Where is your king? Where now is your king? It's not that they, they didn't have a king. They had a king. But what they realized is that their king couldn't help them. If you look at the history that we've been reading along this, we've seen it in 1 Kings. We've seen the history of Israel that they got in trouble with the nations around them. And they would try to make agreements with these other nations to protect them. It'd be like going to school and you have a bully, and so you go to the gang leader that, 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 and ask him if you could, you would pay him to beat up the bully. Now, you know that ain't nothing but trouble waiting to happen. Because if he helped you beat up the bully, he's going to want something more from you than just that little pay you gave him. You his. You belong to him. That's what happened with Israel. So instead of going to God to resolve their issues, they went to somebody else. And, and, and God is saying, Where, where's your king? Show me him. He's going to get you out of this situation. Show me your rulers. Where are they? Can they redeem you? Can they save you? Can they deliver you? What we need today is not a new system. What we need today is not new banks that give us money. What we need today is not government who gives us all this stuff. What we need today is not a new technology or new health benefit or new, new uh, drugs. that get. What we need is the Lord who we have and he's available. We need to trust him. We need to walk with him and in his ways. So he says, where's your king? And then he answers the question. Love this answer. Verse 11. I gave you a king in my anger and I took him away in my wrath. Sometimes God gives us what we desire. And that is a part of his discipline or his judgment. 
Sometimes he gives us what we ask for as a part of his discipline. And then there's sometimes that he takes away the thing that we ask for as a part of his discipline. So sometimes, you know, people say, look, God, God blessed me. He gave me this. Be careful there. <laughs> How do you know? <laughs> that could be part of God's judgment or God's discipline on you. And then we say, you know, God took this away. <laughs> Sometimes God gives as part of his judgment. He said, I gave you a king in my anger. God knew that they were wrong in their motive in asking for a king. He gave it to them anyway. But then he got to the point he couldn't put up with it anymore. He took them away in his anger and his wrath as well. God's in control, isn't he? <laughs> He's definitely in control. Be careful as you ask. Why don't you ask according to his will? The Bible teaches us how to pray. He speaks that truth to us. Submit yourself to God. Instead of telling him what you want, why don't you ask him to lead and guide your life? Why don't you say, Lord, whatever you would have me to do, I'm, I'm willing to do. Why don't we submit ourselves to him? Why don't we just humble ourselves, say, God, I trust you in leading my life. You know, we have people who say, you know, I want God to give me a job, and I ain't working on that job. I ain't finna do this over here. I ain't gonna be doing that. Why don't you just say, Lord, whatever you tell me to do, I'm gonna do. I'm simply gonna obey you. We have some people say, well, you know, I ain't having no more kids. Why don't you say, God, what you tell me to do, I'll do. God, what you show me, where you lead, I will go. I'm going to submit to your purpose and your will. Now, I think it's proper to say, Lord, give me wisdom. There are some things that you give me to choose to do. I want wisdom even in that. But I think you ought to submit to the Lord in all of that. Give me wisdom, Lord, to, 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 to choose carefully and to choose according to your purpose and according to your will. Verses 12 through the end of the chapter shows the result of, of their sin and God's judgment and he pictures it this way in verse 12 that their Israel is holding on to their sin. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. The picture there is that they're holding on to their sin. Instead of turning from their sin, they're clinging to it, okay? Um, and so they, they are refusing to turn from, refusing to repent from their sin. He gives them this picture. They are like a baby that's not born who refuses to come out of the womb and be born. That's the picture he gives in verse 13. The pains of childbirth come for him, but he's an unwise son. For at the right time, he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. What happens when it happens? It's a stillborn baby. He's talking about death. When we reject, when we refuse to respond to God in the way that we should, when we hold on to our sin instead of pursuing God, it's an ugly picture. Picture there is of death. What will the Lord do? Verse 14 through 16. I think verse 14 can be given in terms of a question. In some of the texts you have it that way. Um, you can take it as a question. Will I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Will I redeem them from death? I think the answer is given in the end of that verse. Compassion is hidden from my eyes. 
God is saying, no, I'm going to judge them. I am going to bring my judgment. In the next two verses, he says what that judgment is. Verse 15, though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched. He shall strip, he, it shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Says, the wind of the Lord shall come. It's from the Lord, this judgment is coming. What does it do? It says, this fountain shall dry up. The spring shall be parched. What was a blessing, his blessings now have diminished, have disappeared. They've dried up. It shall strip his treasury from every precious thing. That's just a picture of God's judgment. It is even more distinct in verse 16 when he says, They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces. Their pregnant women ripped open. What a graphic picture of those under God's judgment and God's punishment. But God is saying, it doesn't have to be like that. He says, my people, going back to that verse in verse 7, is it? Verse 6, my people ought not to forget me when they get full. When they are blessed, when they're living in prosperity, when they have things, they ought not to forget me. They ought to remember, he says in the verse previous to that, that I am the Lord there. God. What will you do this week to remind yourself that it is the Lord that you trust in, it is the Lord that you walk in, walk with and live obedient, live in obedience to? What will you do to remind yourself of that? What will you do that you won't forget God? You hear that's a good sign. That's a good thing. You need to continue in that this week. You need to, you need to be walking so that you don't regard things higher or above God. Ask yourself, am I willing to do whatever God asked me to do? Have I put stipulations on obeying God? Have I put God at arm's length? Do I really want a relationship where I am close to God, I'm listening to God, and I'm obedient to him? Whatever he tells me to do, I do. I pray that today will be that day when you say, Lord, I don't want to be like sinful Israel. I want to submit to your way. I may not know all your way and I may not have to know everything, but I want to be obedient to you. I want to submit to you. I pray that that's your heart's desire today. God is gracious to his people. He's gracious to speak clearly to them, to warn them, this message to Israel is a message to us today to warn and say, don't go that route. Be aware of the dangers of that. Would you submit to God today? Will you say yes to God today? Will you say, Lord, I will not say no to you in anything in my life. And when I realize that I've said no, I'll repent of that. And I'll say, Lord, that's not the attitude. Turn my heart back to you. Forgive me for that obstinance, that hard-headedness, that my self-willedness, that, 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 that me wanting to go my way because that's the way that leads to destruction. I want to obey you, Lord. Father, I pray that that be the message of our hearts today, that we will recall who you are 
and that we are to have a daily personal relationship with you. That relationship needs to be, um, we need to have a humble heart, willing heart to do whatever you tell us to do. A humble heart to accept and to hear what it is you have to say. I pray that you speak to hearts right now. Bless those hearts, Lord, that are humbling themselves before you right now. That are acknowledging their need to submit to you and walk with you. That are asking you to show them ways that they should do this in there. I'll ask you to open their eyes so they can see more clearly how you want them to go. Bless those hearts. And Lord, there are hearts here who may not be there. I pray that you just continue working in their heart, in their lives, and show them. I would pray that they don't have to go to the extreme that Israel has gone through, but I pray that they, they would hear your message. You speak to their hearts. You move in their hearts. Lord, I pray for myself that you would move in my heart. Protect me from that hard-heartedness. Protect me from that pride. Protect me from my own rebellion, my own contentedness of being okay where I am. I pray that I'd submit to you, Lord, and walk in obedience to you. That might be a testimony, maybe an example to others. I pray this in Jesus' name.